0: President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Fuller. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're
1: hundreds of basis points away from our target.
0: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to our special reunion radio edition of Behind the Markets. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research of Wisdom Tree, and ETS sponsor, class of 2003 from the Wharton School here. My co host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note that I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategies nor tied to the offer of investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree or its affiliates. We've got two great Wharton grads with us in, on the program today, one in the studio with us, Ron Albahari, the CIO of the Threshold Group, class of 1990 from Wharton. Ron, thank you for joining us here in the studio. Thank you for having me. I'll uh, we'll be looking forward to talking to you about your background, about the Threshold Group, your approach to investing, and, and thinking a lot of key important issues um professor before uh, i get to ron maybe we can start with you with just some brief thoughts on on the markets here
1: yeah um well you know back and file back and file is comey going to delay the republican agenda really as we've we've been talking about all since his election we want corporate tax reform uh that's what the market is counting on and uh Anything that might delay that is uh, is is always a negative. Um, uh, we got a, after a little scary PPI yesterday, we got a pretty qu- uh, quiet CPI today, but there's no question next month, June, uh, that they're going to raise. I mean, that's that's a slam dunk with the unemployment rate of 4.4%. Uh, you know, we're going to get an, an increase. Whether, you know, it happened in September and then in December, just in December, Two or three. We're going to have to see how uh, the uh, the data uh, falls. Uh, as you know, we had after the Trump election a big rise in business optimism, even consumer optimism. But it really hasn't been matched by a big rise in in the hard data. What's really, I think, driven the market? Why the first quarter was so good is that, for the first time in probably eight or nine years, the world economy. Is running on virtually all engines. Emerging markets is recovering. Um, Europe is recovering. I mean, some really good earnings came out of Europe for the first time. Um, and even though U- US GDP was kind of punk, uh, we had over half the firms actually beat their revenue estimates for the first time, and I think 10 or 12 quarters. So, um, you know, that, that, that earnings was, uh, was, was, was certainly, um, very very good. Um, again, you know, they're waiting how long is it going to be? What's going to happen? Do they have to do health care? I mean I I was I was listening to Larry Kudlow who uh, I respect a lot and know very very well and I agreed with him completely. He said, you know, the healthcare rewrite in the Senate is a much more potential delay to corporate tax reform than anything going on with the FBI director at this particular point. Um, but don't forget, they can also do a corporate tax reform without that, but they won't know exactly where the revenue stands in, in that particular case. So, you know, basically, um, those those issues are the floating issues that we've been dealing with for, for two or three months.
0: I know Ron here in studio would like to, to jump in here, Professor.
2: Professor Siegel, nice to talk to you today. Thank you. Um, what do you think about the dearth of volatility across markets yeah, today don't. and... I think we're in the fifth percentile in terms of history. You know why?
1: Because we're not in a a global macro shock. Um, uh, You know, basically, we're in, as we know, a a too slow recovery, but a recovery uh, that the National Bureau said started in in June of uh, of, uh, 2009. So, you know, we're almost eight years into it. And that little recession scare we had last year when oil plunged down into the 20s, it's over. Um, and oil is, you know, not not robust. Um, and that could be somewhat of an earnings issue on, on the energy sector. But uh, there's, there's no clouds of the recession. And I think that that is... You know or or excess fed tightening these are the things that really scare the markets that I think can produce the volatility and um that's one reason I think uh volatility is 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 uh very 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 low now there's a lot of political uncertainty, but I think with the French election and we have an upcoming Italian election, you know I made the statement right after brexit when I was actually on c n b c that morning after the Brexit vote, and I said no other countries that's in the euro will get out. Um, and I, you know, a lot of people were surprised by that then, especially with other votes that came. But I still stand for it. Italy's not getting out, uh, so I think that some of the uh, breakup fears uh, in Europe have definitely been quieted. Uh, the hard landing in China has. Diminished, although there's a lot of debt there, but they got a lot of levers, and it's not really an international currency yet, the yuan. So uh, in, in some ways, some of the big risks that caused the volatility have subsided, I think, significantly over uh, the last couple of
0: months. So professor interesting on um, you know in, in terms of that volatility reduction um you know we've seen you know the emerging markets the international markets Europe way outperforming the US this year yeah um, is and is there anything that global economy commodity cycle? You know, I've heard some people think that commodity prices are you know you're not going to have this big impetus from China that you did historically. China has been a key source of risk for the markets. Mm-hmm. Is that is that something you worry about? I know you've described the current economy in the last few weeks as is a it, is it goldilocks economy. Do you worry that we just think this is a goldilocks economy? Of course, and
1: of course you do worry. And when VIX goes below ten, you say, hey, no one's have worries. That's when something's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but you know. You know, Jeremy, and for two years, um, and I've been traveling around giving talks, and I said, I think the U.S. is pretty fully valued, not overvalued, but in given interest rates, okay. And I kept on saying, but the emerging markets and Europe are cheaper, and that over a three to five year period, you would do better. Well, everyone was down on EM and, and Europe, of course, but now... Uh, we begin to see a uh, really interest. It's not an embarrassment to say I'm now waiting in, in, in these countries um and because of the good earnings and you know, I'm I'm looking here at the Eurostock fifty at fifteen times this year's estimated earnings. The S and P is is eighteen. Uh, you know, EM is 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 uh, even lower in many, many cases. So I mean these are really in a low interest rate environment which is not going to get much higher are very persuasive so uh... yeah commodities in china is is they there they they are certainly correlated to a great extent but uh... Um, unless there's some sort of huge debt crisis and there is some low inversion on some of that long pin curve uh... Um, uh... the, 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 the Fears are certainly less than they were a year ago.
0: Have a good weekend here.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So, Ron, uh, so we heard a little bit from the professor on, on his thoughts on the markets. Uh, maybe let's, before we, we get to your thoughts, let me just go a little bit more about your background. Uh, so, you know, you've overseen in your history, Ron Albahari, overseen over $200 billion in your career. That's a big number, Ron. It's kind
2: of daunting, but I guess over 27 years, it's really not that big.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, it is an <laughs> impressive number. So you. maybe you can talk to us a little bit about where you've done that. So you've had, before joining the Threshold Group as CIO, you've been uh, started your career at Merrill Lynch, from what I understand. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you progressed, uh, spent a lot of time at Merrill Lynch, the different places you did there, and then we'll get into the Threshold Group. Sure, you bet.
2: Uh, So I was fortunate enough to have started in an executive development program 27 years ago at Merrill Lynch in the home office in uh, the metropolis of Plainsboro, New Jersey, just outside of Princeton. And I was fortunate because I was assigned to uh, the financial planning department, which at the time was a pimple on the rear end of uh, of the firm. Uh, The firm was comprised of 17,000 stock jockeys. But the strategy for the firm was to convert those stock jockeys into financial planners. And I was a part of a team that actually built out the next generation of financial plans for the firm. Mm -hmm. And that's where my appreciation and my love for goals-based investing started. And I would say that that is the common theme throughout my 27-year career. It's been uh, a long career of learning about the impact of behavioral, behavioral, cognitive, and emotional biases on investors and trying to figure out ways to not only mitigate the, the risk that those biases impair a client's or investor's ability to reach their goals, but in some cases to take advantage of those biases to help them actually make better decisions.
0: So talk how did you find Threshold Group, uh, what attracted you to them, and maybe talk a little bit about that company's background, what, t- what type of clients you guys are serving. Sure,
2: you bet. Uh, so Threshold Group uh, was started by a gentleman named George Russell back in 1999. George Russell, you may know. Uh, he started a firm called Frank Russell Company back in the 50s with his granddad and grew it into a, uh, a firm that advised on trillions of dollars in assets in 1999.
0: Small little firm there. Small
2: firm. Uh, DORS the $200 billion you mentioned uh, in my career. Um, and it's most widely known for the Russell indexes. Yeah. Uh, but when he sold Russell Investments, he created a Threshold Group to to manage his family's wealth. Uh, now, if you look 17 years later, we work with 78 other families and family foundations as their advisor, as their registered investment advisor. And I've been there now six years. Now, you asked me what attracted to me to the firm. First and foremost, it was the the values of the firm, but also the, the, the heritage of excellence in investment management that that Russell – that, that george russell brought to threshold group and I, I felt like i had a great opportunity um six years ago to essentially create the investment philosophy 2.0 for threshold group um and my vision which started way back when i started in financial planning was to create a behavioral finance based goals based investment philosophy and process and that's what we've done uh, we have created a, a process that really focuses on four different dimensions uh, where we infuse behavioral finance principles into those four dimensions. The first is, how do we make decisions internally as a research group? And the cornerstone of that is being vulnerable. Each one of us on the research team is vulnerable with each other. So everyone on that team, my team knows that I grew up uh, with uh, a father who was a Holocaust survivor who told me, you know, around the corner, there's the next disaster. And so I'm a left-tail person. I will look at and assess the worst-case risks. Yeah. My teammates may be optimists. And so when we have discussions about how do we want to allocate assets, what are the theme, macroeconomic themes that are out in the marketplace, they're going to challenge me if I am overweighting some of the, the risks that I'm seeing out there. And they'll call me out on it.
0: Well, and, let, me, uh, let me just follow up on that, because you, you asked Professor Siegel the question of volatility. Uh, he's, you asked about the low volatility environment. Is that so being left-tailed in your thinking? And is there something that's bubbling up on your, your radar as, as maybe an outside risk today? Well, the question, a follow-up question I would have
2: had for Dr. Siegel if we had had more time was, was the following. You know, do you really believe that the U.S. markets, at a minimum, have priced in the volatility embedded in this administration? In terms of the somewhat random, if not chaotic, decision-making that seems to be going on at the federal level, it would be hard for me to to say sit here and believe that the markets have truly priced in the kind of uncertainty related to that volatility of decision-making
0: they're all focused on tax cuts like the professor that's what he would come back to. I mean, I know he's every time we talk about Trump it's always about tax cuts, tax cuts. When's he going to get the tax cuts? But that's the headline, yeah. right? And so,
2: you know, first of all, when is it going to happen? And yeah. Dr. Siegel mentioned that, but secondarily, what will the what will the substance of those tax cuts really be? What's what's the if you dig deeper, will it actually have the catalytic economic effect that it that the markets are pricing in? And they're pricing in a goldilocks scenario in that in that regard.
0: Sure. So I, I disrupted you on your Sorry. four pillars of a uh, vault. So one is your, you know, you have your own personal biases that you guys are trying to to think about. So we you put might-
2: them on the table. We're totally transparent, and that yields much better decision making internally because we know each other's uh, biases. The second uh, dimension is working with clients, and uh, and and one thing that I think one aspect of being an advisor that gets very little attention in our industry is the importance of clarity of communication. And in my experience. Establishing and managing expectations with clients is paramount, and that 's what gets you fired if you don 't do a good job of it. So let me tell you a quick story in terms of why communication is so critical and This was prior to threshold many years many years ago, I was working with a prospect. I had my first meeting with this prospect and i and she had twenty million dollars and she looked at me and she I, I asked her, "Can I ask you two questions she said sure i said here 's the first question you entrust us with your twenty million dollars. We invested a certain way." And a year from now, it's down 10%. How would you feel about that? She said, we could handle that kind of risk. I said, great. Let me ask you the second question. True story. Same scenario. We manage your $20 million. A year from now, you're down $2 million. How would you feel about that? She said, we can't tolerate that kind of risk. It happened. Um, and it reinforced to me at the time, and I I, I thought it would happen, that... If I stopped with the first question and frame it as a 10% loss, 10% sounds like a small number. $2 million sounds like a a large number. It was, in fact, about six years' worth of her lifestyle. And so framing things the right way, framing as a behavioral finance concept, has such a critical impact as to whether you're building a portfolio that a client truly understands intrinsically.
0: Yeah, interesting. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We have Ron Bahari, the CIO of the Threshold Group, a uh, family office uh, RIA started by the the Russell. Russell family now branching out. So the second pillar is communicating the right way, framing returns in ways that they can understand. Uh, that, there's a lot into that conversation, too. But I know you said you had four pillars uh, that you might sort of frame sure. on behavioral finance. you want to keep exploring? Absolutely. This. So um, the
2: third dimension is evaluating managers. So we, are, we don't run proprietary products or proprietary asset management strategies. We're sort of a, an architect and general contractor. We are going to go out there and find subcontracting investment management across asset classes with the best third-party managers. And so when we're evaluating a manager, we want to understand, are they prone to behavioral issues, mm-hmm. cognitive and emotional biases? And so we don't just pull out a questionnaire and, let's say, and tell them we're going we're gonna to figure out whether you have any behavioral issues. We ask different questions throughout the entire due diligence process to really assess, are they most prone to what I think is the most common issue amongst the investment management community? And that is overconfidence, Uh, which I think as an extension of that is a self-attribution bias, which essentially means that most managers, a lot of managers will think that good decisions were based on skill, bad decisions were based on bad luck. And we're trying to figure out, are they vulnerable? Are they humble? Are they evaluating mistakes? Are they overweighting mistakes and underweighting their successes, which is the way you should invert Mm. the equation to truly understand how to get better every year as an asset manager. So that's pillar number
0: three. Let me ask on, on that. And to so t- talk about m- managers with biases. And, and also, it's sort of interesting, given that you're founding by a big indexing company, by the founders of a big indexing company, but also consultants, portfolio consultants. They have Russell known for the indexes, but also big active portfolios as well. How do you think about the active-passive divide as you know, maybe just any general commentary you have on, on an index approach and how you guys build portfolios to incorporate active and passive?
2: So we don't have a particular bias one way or the other uh, in terms of active versus passive. Clearly, one of our goals in building a portfolio is to build a a a portfolio that from a risk return profile works well for a client and that works well for them net of fees. So where we can use passive investments, we do, especially if the lever that we need to pull for a particular client is lower fees. Alpha excess return is elusive. Um, and it's getting even more challenging as the investment management industry becomes more commoditized, if you will. So our focus, since we're not the size of Russell Investments with 500 analysts around the world, we have 12 on our team, is to focus our efforts on building investment active exposures where we truly feel like we can add value consistently over time, net of fees, net of taxes, which means we are going to infuse a lot of exposures within, within our portfolio with some passive exposures. I would say though, given where we're at in terms of the, the global macro backdrop that we're looking at, we do believe that we've seen a regi- we're, we're going to see a regime shift hmm. from a regime where volatility was an occasional visitor to, to a regime where it becomes a companion, where we see it elevated consistently. That transition has not happened, but we believe it will happen which means that we, where we do have some passive exposures, we're actually now starting to favor more active exposures, active managers that do a great job trying to minimize drawdowns and maximize upside, which is really, in my opinion, the true alpha, if you will. Any manager that knows how to step out of the way when markets are frothy and, can mitigate, and mitigate risk, but also be opportunistic when everybody's running for the hills.
0: Very good. We're, we'll come back to that, too, I'm sure, in a, in a few follow-ups. Um, so that's, we got, we've got through three of your four uh, behavioral places. What's, what's the, so the fourth one?
2: So the fourth one is uh, applying behavioral finance to the portfolio construction process. Uh, you may or may not be familiar with Dr. Richard Thaler. Uh, I probably shouldn't mention his name here on the Wharton campus. So. He's all right. <laughs> Professor Siegel
0: has done some collaboration with him. Um, you know, they, they've we've we've. And I don't know if you know this, but my first project with Professor Siegel was actually writing the behavioral finance chapter of Stocks for the Long Run, the third edition in two thousand two. So I'm very much, very well versed in all this behavioral finance uh, literature there.
2: Good. So, as a Wharton grad, I, I can't feel bad about mentioning a professor no, from another fine institution. Uh, but he came up with a theory of mental accounting. This concept that if with different labels that you put on buckets of assets, that individuals will place a different value and a different level of risk on those buckets. So, the great example I like to use is: I go to to the ATM machine, I take hundred dollars out of my savings account. I don't want to lose that at the casino. I go to the blackjack table. I win a hundred dollars. And I'm willing to risk that second hundred dollars. Why? Because it's the house's money. Yeah. And so I have it. I'm willing to take more risk with the second hundred. Yet both hundred dollar bills have the same purchasing power. So there's there's a lot of power. I think a lot of leverage in building portfolios and taking advantage of human's basic desire to label buckets of assets and to think of them differently from a return and risk perspective. And this has been manifested in our investment process, uh, I think, most recently, in terms of how we invest for foundations that really want to focus on impact investing, where we've created, we've taken this amorphous mass called a portfolio, which has multiple tensions within it, where it's trying to solve multiple uh, opposing issues. I want to maximize financial return. I want to maximize positive environmental and social outcomes. I want to invest for perpetuity, but I have expenses that I have to meet on my foundation and I need to make grants. There are a number of different tensions that one thing is trying. this one thing called a portfolio is trying to address. And so we thought, why not disaggregate? Why mm. not create three different buckets? The first bucket being the operating bucket to meet expenses for the foundation as well as grant making. And we label it the operating bucket. And What percent
0: of a portfolio should be in that operating bucket for a standard foundation? So
2: it's probably going to be anywhere between, let's call it, 18 to 24 months, 18 to 36 months worth of the expenses of the foundation as well as their grant grant making. So 15, 20 percent maybe?
0: And all in sort of safe duration cash, essentially.
2: Yes. Stable, highly liquid. Short-duration cash and maybe intermediate-duration cash if you want to go further out, closer to that 36 months. But that's the operating bucket, and that becomes almost the shock absorber to the second bucket, which is required. And many foundations, for example, have a perpetuity goal. And so you create the growth bucket, which now is insulated somewhat from market volatility by that operating bucket. The third bucket is really, to me, the, one of the most interesting ones. And it, but it, it, it serves to demonstrate how this mental accounting bucketing approach r- works well for foundations focusing, who want to focus on impact. There's unfortunately a, a somewhat of a dark cloud over impact investing that you, one has to be concessionary to invest for environmental and social good. We don't believe that at all. But as a fiduciary, maybe you don't want to make a full commitment of the corpus in that direction. So creating a third bucket, putting some governance around it, Perhaps maximizing its allocation at five percent and using it as your as your laboratory as your incubation allocation for high impact ideas, catalytic ideas that are aligned with your mission as a foundation where impact is deemed to be the first objective, and not that you 're going to be concessionary in, in your returns, but returns are secondary, but just for that allocation and so the mental accounting framework has worked beautifully because it 's minimized. The, the risk that some of these boards take or assume when they're starting to dip a toe in the water from an impact investing perspective.
0: Are, are there any, are you, so I, I want to drill into the impact investing, um, but also in terms of behavioral finance, or do you have a bias towards behavioral finance managers? Are, are there strategies? I know Thaler has an asset management firm, Fuller and Thaler Asset Management. Um, a lot of them tend to be value oriented, sort of overreaction, underreaction. People overreact to the sort of short-term news. Uh, underreact under to sort of long-term news sometimes. I mean, what, any sense on that, those types of strategies? Well,
2: the way you frame the question actually will drive my answer. You asked me if I was biased towards, and, and the whole essence of our investment process is to be as unbiased as possible and not to allow a label. So as... Even though Dr. Thaler has obviously a terrific reputation in the space, and you would think that his fund reflects that, what we try to do as analysts is remove the labels from the funds or from the managers. We don't want to know what they call themselves because we don't want to be influenced by that. We look at every strategy as simply an ingredient, and the ingredient has certain attributes. And we want to put all the ingredients together that we possibly can to maximize the risk return profile of this thing called a portfolio or within each one of those three buckets. So no- I'm not biased towards those. They're certainly interesting to look at. And uh, I guess my expectation would be that they're closer to what I'm looking for in terms of having managers that are uh, somewhat unconstrained by their biases. But, no, we're not in favor okay. of either for or against.
0: So you also made a comment there um, on trying to take the labels off and how you build portfolios without, without labels. Um, maybe talk about just your overall asset allocation approaches I mean where you think, how you think about where that future is heading and how you 're building sort of portfolios as core satellites and and how you 're thinking about that from a from this labeling perspective sure thank you
2: so I was fortunate six years ago when I started at threshold that I was given an opportunity to rethink to imagine a new investment philosophy two with an institution that had been around a long time and a client base receptive to innovation, given george russell 's um, A reputation for innovation. And so, my vision back then, which we're now much closer to, is blowing up all asset classes. Which, when I say that, I usually get this very perplexed look like, what do you mean, blowing Blowing up up. asset classes? But asset classes are constraining. As an investor, we're conditioned to build an investment policy statement to list a number of asset classes like US equities, international developed, emerging, and so forth. And when you put a list of things in front of me as an investor, I'm I'm going to be compelled to fill those buckets. And the reality is, as you fill those buckets and you look at the portfolio, if you X-ray it, you probably have a lot of duplicative risks, overweighting of exposures that you don't want. And the last thing I want for our clients and certainly for my re- research team is to be constrained by filling buckets. I want them to find strategies that as part of this, to- the totality of portfolios can be additive and not be compelled to invest in a strategy because of its label. So as part of the vision, we, what, we've, what we've mapped out and we've the first iteration of it we've applied to the impact investor is this pod-based framework. And the pods are simple. But there are no uh, requirements to include certain asset classes within them. So there are four basic pods. The first pod is the core pod. The core pod, its thesis, its objective is simply to create asymmetry, maximize upside participation in markets, and minimize drawdown. Mathematically, simple math, the, the math of compounding will tell you if you can successfully maximize upside participation when markets are up and minimize drawdowns when markets collapse, compounded over time, you can actually outperform an S&P 500 or Russell 3000 or any kind of a global
0: economy. We haven't seen those drawdowns in a while. That's part of the problem. Let me let 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 you finish the pod, but I'm going to come back to if we have some time here on how you're you're doing that.
2: Yes, great great point. So uh, that's the core of the portfolio. If if you believe asymmetry is the secret sauce to building capital over time through bull and bear markets, that's the critical aspect of its success. Then you have a growth pod, most investors need some form of growth. you have a yield pod and a stability pod and those are the, those three those last three are the satellites and but within as we build each one of those pods, we're not thinking about well we need a certain amount in equities and we need a certain amount in credit and commodities that's constraining and yeah. so we may have duplicative exposures in those different pods but it, in totality, each pod is accomplishing its goal.
0: That is interesting. So it sounds like the core pod is much more – well, I, I won't put words in your mouth. How, describe how you're going to minimize drawdowns in the core pod um, and how – you know, everybody wants the crystal ball that predicts when the next market downturn is coming. But how do you think about diversifying strategies for that?
2: So in the core pod, we have a number of different tools that uh, two of them we've developed. We don't build products, but we think of, of exposures as solutions, as compilations of ingredients that yeah. we call managers. So we have a, a a couple of solutions within there that where we've pulled third-party managers together, where we've done the analytical work to – Uh, at least what we believe, have figured out how they could perform in different market regimes to give us that maximum up, minimum downside protection exposure. The challenge, as you highlighted earlier, is we haven't seen downside volatility. And that's where most of the value add happens. But unless you believe we will never see downside volatility again, there will never be a bear market again, we still see great value in having those types of exposures. So we have Um, Liquid exposures, a variety of tools that attempt to do to create that up and down capture in different ways. And uh, we also uh, very recently created a bespoke uh, hedge fund to fund solution that we call the multi insight solution um, that we believe, given this. You know, expected change in regimes where volatility becomes a companion. That you're going to need different sources of of uh, different managers that can take advantage of dislocations that we anticipate happening over the next five years.
0: You know, we're almost at the top uh, or the bottom part of the first half of our show here. We talked about a lot of good topics. I know we've covered a lot of your behavioral finance-oriented approach to things. Some of these new interesting ways of building portfolios. We've touched on social and, and in, impact investing a bit, but I know that's your your key focus. One of your key focuses, or one of the most interesting aspects of of how you guys are allocating capital. Um, I'll give you sort of an opportunity. Do you want to talk about the the social impact, or would, is there any other closing areas? What you think we should focus on in the last next few minutes?
2: I, 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 what I'd like to do is just make a, a general statement that uh, I think it's a it's a gross misperception out there that one has to be concessionary to invest in a way where the investment strategies themselves and the underlying companies can produce positive environmental and social outcomes. And I would take this one step further. That I, I think the investment management industry is missing an opportunity here, to to mine the inefficient data that exists within the environmental and social and governance areas, for alpha sources, hmm. for an, a better understanding of the positive and ne- negative externalities associated with environmental and social practices, as well as the f- the investment case that can be made for a number of of, of managers that are investing in companies that produce environmental and social positive outcomes in terms of their products and services.
0: This week I was actually just talking with somebody who's in this outcome-oriented, very high, you know, they have a big environmental impact. They're also positioning for this positive outcomes and trying to benefit from outcomes versus just negative screening. Um, What do you... So you can see how they are very tied to oil prices. So they've had a rough three years in in terms of just sort of raw short-term performance given where oils come down, you know, although it's bounced back for sure, but... Um, in general, it's been down. It's been 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 rougher for them. Any sense on where the social side, where you're seeing some of the out, you know, people for opportunities mm-hmm. that, that they're taking advantage of there?
2: Yes, um, actually, uh, in one area in particular, um, I was actually just asked to join the advisory board for the Center for High Impact Philanthropy here at at the University of Pennsylvania. Hmm. Kat Rosqueda runs that 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 group, and it's focused on gender lens investing. Uh, it's, it, but it's focused on uh, really trying to understand how the entire ecosystem of investment management can elevate that particular aspect of the S in a way that betters the lives of women and girls.
0: Very good. We're going to have to take a short break here. We've been talking with Ron Albahari, the Chief Investment Officer of the Threshold Group. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Wharton Business Radio Reunion Weekend. Coming up, we're going to be talking with Benit Kothari, uh, another Wharton graduate uh, and and uh, C- founder of, of the Technic Group. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, host and Wharton class of 2003. I'm going to be joined by one of my uh fellow graduates of the Wharton school who I, I actually spent some time with at Wharton Benit Kothari he was class of 2004 here we met each other on the Wharton dean's advisory board an organization we we both participate in here at school Benit welcome to our program
3: thank you very much Jeremy
0: so you're currently the managing partner, principal portfolio manager of Techni, uh, an asset manager focused on technology. We're going to talk about your views there. Uh, maybe just sort of talk to our our listeners. How? Where did you go from Wharton? How did you sort of advance your career? You were one of those M and T management technology guys who I always thought of as one of the sort of smarter guys I came across here. But talk about you know how you started your career after after Wharton.
3: Sure. Um, I don't know if we were. Uh, the smarter guys, but we certainly were more interested in technology. And so I went right after college to work in the technology division of uh, the investment banking group at Morgan Stanley, worked there for about a year. And then right after that, I joined Stan Druckenmiller, who ran a large macro hedge fund called Duquesne Capital, and I ran um, the technology group in that. Hedge fund from 2005 till about 2010,
0: 2011. Now that's pretty amazing. At sort of young, right out of school, how did you? How do you think you got to be in that position to to do that?
3: You know he he was uh, he was in the process of trying to find a technology analyst. So it was a standard recruiting process, and I don't know how many people they they interviewed, but um, there was no special connection there. It was just yeah. Out of out of the banking group, a lot of people go out and try to find private equity or hedge fund job, and there's all these recruiters, and it's a fairly standard process to try to get in front of some of these people.
0: Yeah. So what? How? Uh, so where do you go from Duquesne? I mean, what what led you uh, you you out of there?
3: Duquesne. Uh, Duquesne. Stan in 2010, 2011, effectively turned Duquesne into a family office and helped seed, the predecessor fund called Point State Capital, where I was for a couple of years. And then I was approached by a few investors to start my own fund. Hmm. And that was toward the end of 2012. I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And, uh, you know, you never know whether you made the right decision until many, many years, until after the decision's been made, unfortunately. But at that time, it felt like um, not only the right thing to do, but but certainly a fun thing to do. And I left Point State to start Technic Capital um, right at the uh, tail end of 2012.
0: Very good. So, talk about what you guys uh, at Technic are, are focused on. Uh, the different strategies you tend to. You know, so, obviously, tech is a, a key focus. But how do you think about the technology universe and and where where you're focused?
3: We so we invest globally across all different sizes we are not a large fund ourselves but we tend to invest in some of the largest companies around the world uh, we have a big focus today for the last few years and hopefully for the next few years in a lot of the internet businesses um, we invest a lot in some of the media and the telecom sectors as well and the fourth area where we've spent a lot of time is in software and, and the, the common trait among all of our investments is that of profitable growth. You know, if you can find a growing business that also happens to make a lot of money, the probability of you having permanent capital loss over a three, four, five year period is, is very low. And that's how we tend to think about investing. You know, are these profitably? Growing businesses, and are they leaders in what they do? Yeah, no. If they happen to be in those sectors, I think you increase your probability of success dramatically.
0: You know, when I when we first when I first came to Wharton back in in uh, you know I I got to campus '99. It was sort of interesting times. Uh, Professor Siegel had just written his first op-ed on the tech industry: are our internet stocks overvalued? Are they ever? Back in April of '99, it was about a year early. But then he came out March 14th: big cap tech stocks were a sucker's bet. There you had these triple-digit P ratios on all these big cap tech stocks. Uh, now that's come way down. I mean, how do you think about valuations in the tech sector today? I mean, certainly Nasdaq getting back toward its highs, but very different environment today than it was before. Um, I mean, just talk about what you think the tech valuations are today.
3: So, Jeremy, it's 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 fascinating, right? You think about '99. Back in '99, your your Cisco's and Yahoos and Three Coms were trading at 150 times earnings, and the the old uh, the cyclical names, some of the less interesting names were trading at eight or nine times earnings. And like Professor Siegel pointed out, that dichotomy was unsustainable. Today, you've got your five largest companies in the world, Apple, Facebook, Google, Amazon, trading at roughly 20 to 25 times earnings. Yeah. And they're still growing 30, 40%. And the other part of the market, your, your consumer staples, Uh, You know, you've got Campbell's Soup and and Coca-Cola, which haven't grown in three, four, five, six years, also trading in the high teens or 20 times earnings. And so when I look at the tech, the the growing large cap tech monopolies, which make a ton of money and they don't consume a lot of money to make extra dollars, trading roughly on top of some of these other businesses. that's, you know, not that, I don't think a good way to invest is on is on a relative merit, but I think 20 times earnings, 25 times earnings for the quality of these businesses is both good on an absolute basis, and it's certainly good when you look at it relative to the other opportunities available. How do you
0: think about Amazon? I mean, when you look at Amazon as one of these valuation stocks, it's a very tough one to to actually get a reading on. Is that a cheap stock? Is an expensive stock? Um, the earnings profile is, is a little bit tougher to read on that one.
3: So so one of the things we always do when we, um, we, we don't own Amazon, but we own other businesses where the, the, the P&L, the income statement of the company, I think would be very misleading. Yeah. And if you just focused on that and you didn't spend time unpacking uh, where the money is going, what are they spending in? You would, you would miss out on a, on a big opportunity. Um, you know, the, the ride-sharing sector is, is another sector where you've got similar dynamics. These companies either uh, don't make a lot of money or in some cases lose a ton of money. And I think a, part of, uh, a, main, a big part of our job is to effectively unpack a company's income statement. And when you unpack a company's statement, what you're trying to do is you're trying to ask yourself if this company were run well and if this company were less focused on growth and more focused on just profitability what would it earn right and when you run that model on Amazon it's very very profitable and you know that's an exercise we we are shareholders in Netflix which has a similar Dynamics as Amazon, where the, where the it, it, you know, it's a $160 stock, that barely breaks even. But we do that same exercise when we first bought shares in Netflix, which is, all right, if this thing were run for profitability, what should it earn? And now you put the growth uh, possibilities on top of that, and that's how you make an assessment of whether the stock is cheaper or expensive. Hmm.
0: We're talking with Beni Kothari, the managing uh, or sort of founder of Techni, Techni Capital, um, focused on technology investments, uh, the internet and its impact on, uh, you know, the future here. Um, you talked a little bit about the ride sharing. Everybody talks about Uber and Lyft. Is there beyond, uh, and I know I, regular users in terms of things that have changed my life, that is one of the, the things I use on a daily basis. Um, anything, you know, besides just the US focused ride sharing, is that that you're focused on?
3: Yeah, so we, we, um, we like the sector broadly. We love the sector and the companies in emerging markets. Hmm. So I think every once in a while, you run into a technology that was developed in Silicon Valley, but actually destined for somewhere in, in, in the emerging markets. I think mobile payments is an example of that. I think PayPal is a, is a good business, but the PayPal-like businesses that are in China or India are great businesses because they don't have a legacy ecosystem I think Amazon is a good business here I think Alibaba and JD and China are wonderful businesses because they don't have a Walmart and so when we look at some of these ride sharing businesses the dynamics are fascinating so first of all you've got density right in China you've got 40 50 cities with mil- 2 million people or more in them in the US you have four And that density, you know, I think of these as very urban products. I don't think of them as suburban or rural products. And you don't have that density in in Europe or in the U.S. The second thing you need is car ownership. I think car ownership is going to be one of those things that the emerging market skips as a generation. Whereas car ownership in the United States is almost a rite of passage, you know, it, uh, I, I had friends in, in high school and college who, who, who got a car because uh, it, just, it was the right thing to do and everybody around them was doing it. I ultimately bought a car, too. Whereas I think if you look at the younger populations in some of these emerging markets, it doesn't really make sense. Hmm. right? Uh, the, the biggest purchase that most people make in their lives are their homes, which is a good purchase because they appreciate in value. Most people that buy a car right off the bat, it depreciates 15, 20 percent. And I think there are uh, uh, a lot of dynamics like that that make the sector a good business in the U.S. and a good business in Europe, but a phenomenal business in places like Indonesia, China and India. And that's where we're, we're very, very excited.
0: How do you think that impacts the demand for cars? I mean, one of the other big stories is you have the traditional car companies in the U.S., GM, Ford, versus things like Tesla, where it's another one of these high growth uh, or high valuation future tech stocks. Uh, that's a, just a different multiple, maybe at a at a higher market cap than some of those traditional tech uh, car companies, despite having very little actual production. What's what's your any thoughts on on car demand given this uh, this future world that you are describing?
3: I think I think car demand will be fine in aggregate. I just think the purchaser will change, Mm. right? I think the buyers of of cars are gonna be fewer and fewer individual private car owners and more and more people that can utilize a car better, right? You you look at, you know, the average utilization of a car on a private ownership basis is low, mid single digit percent. But if all cars were sold to people that are utilizing them almost 10, 12 hours a day, just imagine what happens. Those cars break down faster. So over time, you actually yeah. will need more cars. Oh, interesting. Now, these things take time. They're not going to happen overnight, but I'm not that worried about the number of cars that are sold. That doesn't necessarily make GM or Ford a good business, but I wouldn't be worried about the units. I think the, the, the aggregate units of cars sold in 2027, Will almost definitively be higher than the number of cars sold in 2017. I, like, I have no doubt about that.
0: I like taking out the crystal ball ten-year predictions. Um, <laughs> where else? Where else do you think tech, so with car, car sharing or car, uh, the, this car sharing service, the Lyfts and Ubers and all those, the emerging markets versions of them. Any other big themes that you're you're focused on at, at Techni? Uh,
3: I, I would mention two others really briefly. One is obviously mobile payments which we've talked about. I think um, you know a lot of people that, that live and, and, and invest out of the U.S. like myself sometimes don't appreciate how uh, payments can evolve beyond credit cards and debit cards because they seem to work just fine and have ubiquitous acceptance. But if you go out to a place like China or India, you see a QR code in every single merchant's window out there. And... You go to a place like China, NaliPay and TenPay are absolutely the future. In India, late last year, the government effectively took out a lot of physical cash out of the money supply system, effectively forcing people into a digital ecosystem. So I think mobile payments are something you can definitively bet on as a gigantic growth area. And once you can capture payments, then you can sell a lot of services on top of it. You know, Warren Buffett, of whom I'm, like many, many others, is a huge fan, he talked about this idea at the Berkshire Analyst Day uh, recently. He said, what's amazing about Google and Facebook is not just that they make so much money on such little investment dollars, but that they're able to grow into other sectors so easily. And he compared it to Carnegie and Rockefeller 50, 100 years ago, where If you were an oil company 80 years ago, you were an oil company for the next 20, 30 years. Today, you've got Alibaba going off into eight different sectors. You've got Google doing driverless cars. You've got Facebook sending, you know, becoming an Internet service provider in in, in parts of Africa. And that kind of latitude that exists to some of the large businesses today, you really haven't seen that before. Yeah. That doesn't mean they'll be good investments or that they'll be nearly as good as their core businesses. But I think you're seeing that for the first time. And I think mobile payments is an unbelievable launching pad to get into insurance stock brokerages, mutual fund brokerages into a lot of other businesses over time.
0: Yeah, the asset management side definitely seems like that's going to be a, a core place. And you you definitely see that even at, at Alibaba today, from what I understand, that they that's right. have these money market funds and other funds that you know that they're going to keep branching out into other other services on top of that.
3: People don't change their, their banking accounts that much. So once you can lock somebody in... You know, I still have the bank account
0: from stuff. when I was at Wharton when we first got here. I changed banks when I moved to Philadelphia, and I am still with the same bank. <laughs>
3: It's it's funny. I I too did. My first bank account was also at Warden. It was at PNC. Exactly. And I got uh, I got a phone call the other month from PNC asking if I wanted to shut the account down because I still had it open and it still had some money in there. Yeah. People don't change their bank accounts. A lot of my friends still have a, uh, you know, their, their their cell phones start off with with two six seven. Um,
0: yeah, I got the he, same number from back then when I came to Penn. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. Um, any, so we talked a little bit about themes. Any other themes? We've got probably another few, five minutes, maybe six minutes. Um, I want to get some personal career advice from you uh, for people listening in. Um, but any other investment themes you want to touch on? The, the,
3: the other big um, you know, we've got a, a big bet on the Internet expressed in many different ways. The most basic way to express that bet are the, what we call the rails themselves. So providers of Internet around the world. Uh, cable companies, fiber companies. This is a, a a big bet for us, particularly in in the U.S. and in Europe. So companies like Charter, um, Comcast. You know, we think these businesses are, are are unbelievable businesses because of how profitable they are, how well they're run, and how fast they can still grow for the next five, six, seven years. Um, you know, the way we think about it is, if the dot coms of the world are the gold mines, the Facebook and the Amazons. There's only one way to get them, and you got to own the railroads. Hmm. Because the dot-coms, they come and go. Every five or ten years, there's a new Snapchat, a new Facebook, but there's only one charter, and there's only one Comcast into 42 million homes in America. And I think you make money owning both the gold mines and the railroads, Um, but we've got a big bet on on the railroads.
0: Very good. Uh, so maybe a little bit less time than I thought, maybe a little bit less than three minutes. Any, if, if you think about people listening in who want to try to participate in this long-term investment theme of the internet, any, I mean, how do you think about um, how they should access this? Is it through just fund providers like you? Um, you know, although with a, with in some of your structures, I'm sure you've got to have high minimums to get invested. I mean, how do you think about how people should probably try to participate in this in, internet investment theme?
3: I think, I think, You've, you've got to first ask yourself if this is something you're going to be managing actively or passively. To the extent that you want to manage it passively, I'm a big believer in index funds. And whether it's the NASDAQ or another, um, you know, there
0: are uh, a lot of ETFs stuff.
3: out there. There's something called the FDN, which is a, an internet ETF. I'm sure there, there are tons of them out there in our, in our ED, ETF world that we, that we live in today. I think if you want to be an active investor, it's a, it's a different angle. And we're, what I would do is try to really develop conviction around what you think is a good business. And to me, a good business is one that's profitable, one that grows, and one that will be around in 10 years. And if you can find a collection of those, you don't need that many. I would, I would think five is a perfectly fine number. I think you buy those stocks and I think you'll be just fine.
0: And and focus on China, focus on India, any other sort of growth areas outside the U.S. Uh, that you're really excited about?
3: So, you know, we we own a, a tower company in in West Africa. Um, similar idea. The, these towers are unbelievable businesses, and Nigeria is still in the three G world, and you've got a four G move, and then after that you'll have the five G move. So you're very very early stages. Um, but that uh, it gets harder and harder to find such businesses. Um, this happens to be private, so it's even harder for the yeah. average person to invest in that. But the, you know, there's plenty of money to be made in just the three or four countries you name.
0: Nice. Well, Benid Kothari, the founder of Techni Capital, focus on tech, Wharton 2004 m and program. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we had Rana Bahari of Wharton also earlier on the program from 1990 the CIO of Threshold Group. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets Reunion Special Weekend. Uh, you can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast as well. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.